A long, long time ago, my wife and I were watching TV when a news bulletin came on. 60 tourists had just been gunned down by terrorists outside of Cairo, Egypt. Denise turned to me and said, We've gotta go. I asked, Why? She said, Because it won't be crowded. She was right about that, of course. I could think of 60 hotel rooms that just opened up. Wow, I got booed by my own sound effects library. A short, short time ago, my wife and I were watching the Reese Witherspoon film Wild. It's based on the brilliant bestseller by Cheryl Strayed that I never read nor intend to. The film opens with Reese, halfway through a thousand-mile hike, tearing off her boots in disgust. Her feet are blistered and bloody. She hurls the boots into a ravine, uttering a pretty serious blasphemy. Then she yanks out her last remaining toenail with an agonized scream. My wife turned to me. We should take a hike like that. And so Denise booked us a flight to Tanzania for a six-day hike up and presumably down Mount Kilimanjaro. At 19,330 feet, Kilimanjaro is Africa's tallest peak. This would be a challenging hike for even a vigorous young athlete. And I am none of those things. I am a tubby middle-aged man from Manhattan. My weekly workout is an hour on the elliptical trainer, cumulative. Incline, zero. Resistance, zero. Doctors say this provides the same cardio benefits as a hot dog and a milkshake. Most people train for a year to climb Kilimanjaro. We just got off the plane and started doing it. We hadn't even slept for 24 hours thanks to a missed flight connection in Amsterdam. The first leg of our six-day hike went straight up. It's a giant stairway cut into the foothills of the mountain. It's the equivalent of climbing two Empire State Buildings or one of those crazy skyscrapers the Arabs are throwing up these days. At the start of the climb, I am in a tropical rainforest. Soon it becomes a scrubby alpine desert. By the end of the first day, I'll be in a moonscape, devoid of trees, plants, and animals. I will be spending Christmas week in a land where even moss is too smart to grow. That, by the way, is the only description of scenery you're going to get in this story. When you hike up a mountain, you spend the entire time staring at your feet. Every step can maim you. There are pebbles you can slip on, boulders that can crack your kneecap, potholes where you can twist an ankle, and gullies which can swallow you whole. Every pace is a calculation. Every step is like doing your taxes. This is what makes hiking so unbelievably dull. I realized this early on, after what felt like two hours of climbing. I know it hasn't really been two hours. Nothing dilates time quite like the boredom of hiking. It's probably been 90 minutes, maybe just an hour. I look at my watch. It's been 18 minutes. I'm not making that up. Hiking is so mind-numbingly dull, it exceeds all comic exaggeration. There's a scene like this in the movie Interstellar. Matthew McConaughey leaves his ship and travels to the planet of CGI tidal waves. He's only gone for three hours, but due to wormholes or gravity or something, for his fellow astronauts it seemed like 23 years. Three hours that can feel like 23 years. Hiking is like that. So is watching the movie Interstellar. Knowing this would happen, I brought along an iPod loaded with music to get me through the trip. 
That very first day, the iPod slipped out of my ears and fell down into the outhouse I was using. Was I going to dive into an African latrine to rescue a bunch of Smash Mouth songs? I considered it. I finished the first day's hike just as the sun is setting. I'm drained, cramped, and miserable. And yet, I've done it. I've reached the very top of the very bottom of Kilimanjaro. Day 2. We spent the night in a leaky cold tent, then downed a bunch of breakfast biscuits with the amazing name Tiffany's Glucose. Sleepy and undernourished, we began our second day's climb. And that's when I learned that the tour company had eight porters carrying our stuff. Did it really require eight strong men to keep me in abject squalor? I began to think there was some padding in the payroll, especially when I saw Wonder Boy. This was a young African porter whose entire burden was 12 loaves of Wonder Bread dangling from his belt. It was an absurd sight. He resembled a scalp hunter who'd raided a Midwestern Kroger's. 12 loaves of white bread for two people for six days. Somebody, probably the Synthetic Bread Council, convinced them that every American eats an entire loaf of Wonder Bread every day. And it wasn't even real Wonder Bread. It was a knockoff brand. It was bemusement bread. It was fake, fake bread. My wife wouldn't touch the stuff. I ate a pity slice every day. I watched those loaves squooshing together as Wonder Boy walked and thought, Ditch the bread. Carry me. Our tour guide was a man named Anton, although my wife heard it as Irving, as if we'd found the one black Jewish guide in Tanzania. Denise had trouble with Anton slash Irving's accent, causing her to hear some truly remarkable things. Like when he told us he goes to church dressed as Santa Claus. I think he said dressed in Sunday clothes. Either way, it's not something an Irving would say. Then she heard his candid confession that he couldn't be a fisherman because I am Sisi. I'm pretty sure he said seasick. And when he said they greeted the Pope's visit by waving flags, she thought the people were waving pigs. I wish I could see the things my wife hears. At times during the hike, I'd look back at how far I'd come. All I could see was fog. Amorphous gray fog. Fog permanently sits around the base of Kilimanjaro. Unlike me, it knows better than to climb it. Fog is not scenery. It's not even nothing. It's less than nothing. Even when you close your eyes, you see something. White dots of light and multicolored threads floating around. Those threads are dead nerve cells swimming in your eyeball goo. See? You learn something from this podcast. You'll learn one more fact in part two. Yes, this is a two-parter. You just learned that as well. When we reached our second night's campsite, I had to sign in at a park register. It's a massive old-fashioned ledger, the kind Bob Cratchit was always scratching away at. They ask for a tremendous amount of information. Name, signature, occupation, gender, passport number, permit number, tour group, tour leader. There's also a fair amount of redundancy. They ask for your nationality, country of origin, country issuing your passport, and citizenship. Once the register is full, it is tossed, unread on a pile of other registers. There it will slowly crumble into dust. The one other thing they ask for is age. I enter mine. At the time, I was 55. 
Then I look at the other ages listed above me. 19, 22, 17, 24. I turn back page after page in the ledger and the numbers are all the same. 24, 27, 16, 19, 23, 29, 18, 22, 18. Finally, I spot one old geezer of age 33. That's when it hits me. I am the old man of the mountain. I'm not just the oldest man on Kilimanjaro. I could be the father of the next oldest man on Kilimanjaro. For the first time in my life, I know I'm doing something I'm too old for. 20-year-olds shouldn't go to high school proms. 40-year-olds shouldn't attend Burning Man. And I shouldn't be climbing this mountain. Day 3 the first two days hiking were not bad. The first was a giant stairway, the second a gradual rolling ascent. This is all schmuck bait. On the third day, once you've reached the point of no return, the path devolves into a nightmarish series of crags and ravines right out of Lord of the Rings. I begin to see hiking as a metaphor for life. Each day is worse than the one before. I tell my wife, if you're not enjoying this, we can stop at any time. I won't mind. It's the same trick I use when I take her to a horror movie and I'm scared out of my mind. It never works there either. I do have one cute story. As we emerge from our tent one morning, Anton says, I'll bet this is not as comfortable as your hut in New York. <laughs> Adorable. He thinks we live in a hut. I'll bet your hut has a radiator. I don't have the heart to tell him that our hut in New York isn't much bigger than this tent, and it costs $1.5 million plus 1500 a month hut maintenance fees. That's it. Six days hiking, one cute story. Then Anton got down to business. In two days, we'll be climbing to the summit. Did you bring torches? I assumed he meant flashlights and not those burning sticks you used to drive Frankenstein from your town. Whatever he meant, I didn't have them. Rain poncho, rubber boots, scarf, thermal mittens, thermal blanket? No, 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 and no. Anton regarded me like a man who brought a snorkel to a moon landing. Did you at least bring rain pants? Rain pants? I know what snow pants are, but what the hell are rain pants? I do have pants that protect me from the rain. They're called pants. Anton roared at me. You need two pairs of rain pants. Whatever rain pants do, they must not do it very well. Otherwise, you wouldn't need two pairs. He gave me a look of deep disapproval, which masked an even deeper sense of disapproval. My father gave me this look once. It started when I was 13 and ended with his death in 2004. Perhaps Anton was Jewish after all. As we climbed, Anton coached us. Slowly, slowly. 22 years as a guide, 200 ascents of Kilimanjaro, and this was the only advice he could offer. Slowly, slowly. Occasionally, he'd say it in Swahili. Poli, poli. I had expected to go bounding up the mountain like some Hemingway hero. Instead, I was forced to shuffle up it like a Tim Conway character. For you youngsters, Tim Conway was a brilliant comic actor who used to play an old man. Then he was an old man. Now, he's not even that. The only other Swahili I learned was the word for hello. Yambo, except sometimes they said mambo, and occasionally jambo. It seems like a small distinction, but it's the difference between greeting someone with hello, mellow, or jello. Mostly, I just waved and tipped people. 
As I slogged through that third day, I remembered an old news story. Three American hikers in Iraq had been arrested and thrown into Iranian prison. Lucky them! They got to stop hiking and ate Persian food for the next four years. Then I think back to Wild, the movie that inspired this trip. But I can only remember one scene. It's a flashback where Reese Witherspoon is working as a waitress and she has sex with two customers in an alley behind the restaurant. I know this is supposed to depict her character's descent into numb despair, but two thoughts rush immediately to mind. Man, that's hot. And what do you tip a waitress for that? That night, my wife and I lay side by side in our sleeping bags. We were jammed in a tent about the size of a deep freeze, but much colder. We both wore every stitch of clothing we'd brought. Seven layers, and we were still freezing. Every part of us was chapped. My wife stank. I stunk. If this were a UN refugee camp, I said, Bono would visit us and break into tears. My wife laughed. Maybe Sting will write a song about us. I replied, maybe Angelina Jolie will adopt us. It was nice. If we could laugh through this, the apocalypse is going to be a snap. Or maybe it was just oxygen deprivation. Anyway, that's a good place to stop. We're cold, delirious, we can barely breathe, and we're only halfway up the mountain. Will we make it? Tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion, Kilimanjaro, part two. I don't make it. Whoops, spoiler alert. What Am I Doing Here was written and performed by Mike Reese and produced by Josh Perillo, with Denise Reese as herself. Additional voices by Trevor Morris, Mike's funny doorman. <laughs>